Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 246, as tonight we are just about, uh, it sounded like we were just about to head up the slopes of Carothros towards the Redhorn Gate, whatever that is. Um, however, Boromir has something to say first, and tonight we are going to get to look at Boromir's interruption, which... I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Boromir hasn't interrupted a conversation in pages and pages now. Uh, so let's see what our friend Boromir has to say uh, before we take off up the pass. First, though, um, I wanted to share with you guys something. Um, I, yesterday, I had such a wonderful time. Um, so yesterday, I was meeting with my author circle. And let me explain to you what that is. So as I've mentioned before, I'm writing my new book. Exploring the Lord of the Rings. And I'm having a great time writing my new book. Um, I've been working on uh, chapter one of, of the Lord of the Rings. Um, I've made some changes. <laughs> this, this, this will shock you. This will shock you to hear that um, I'm having a hard time fitting everything I wanted to say about chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring into one chapter of my book. Um, I don't think this is entirely my fault. There's a lot that's happening in chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working on that. And, it, and as I say, I'm having great fun. But one of the coolest things about it has been the awesome group of people who have joined in, um, who have signed up to help me with this. Um, so let me explain about, the, uh, about Author Circle and how this works. So at the Signum Press, which, hang on a second, I'm like craning over to see my windows. There we go. Okay. Um, so this is the homepage of the Signum University Press, press.signumuniversity.org. And you can see the announcements of some of our new stuff that we're publishing. But if you go to my author page, so here's our current authors and there's me. Okay, so here's the cover of my new book and everything, and that's cool. So here's the author circle stuff. So here's basically how this works. Um, you're going to be able to get, once we, and we're almost done, um, once we finish ironing out the licensing issues with our good friends at the Tolkien Estate, um, then we're going to start releasing chapters monthly. Um, and that's going to be cool. And I'm really looking forward to that. However, that's why we haven't been able to re release the chapters monthly yet. But in the meantime, I am still working on things. And so the author circle is a way for people who really would like the opportunity to be involved. So like there are kind of two things that the author circle does. On the one hand, it creates a, a patronage group, basically. Uh, you know, this is uh, folks who really want to patronize this author, you know, in the good way of patronizing things, um, who really want to support the author. Um, the author circle, it's not about access to the book. You do get access to the book, but it's its much more than that. Um, it's about access to the author, access to the writing process. My author circle is, um, they're like my... Um, uh, my sounding board, my, uh, uh, my, uh, accountability group, uh, every month I send them drafts of things. So they've been reading, uh, they, we were just discussing yesterday, um, the draft of the, the first draft of the chapter that I've, um, uh, that I've written, uh, on, I've decided to break my analysis of chapter one into three separate chapters so that they're not ridiculously long. Um, anyway, um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, 
it was awesome. We had such a great discussion. They had wonderful feedback on my chapter, and we talked about a lot of possible things and suggested like two or three other books I might write. Um, anyway, it was um, it was it was it was very cool. Um, so uh, anyhow, anyhow, like I've been meeting with my author circle now for a few months, but as we're really kind of starting to get into the nitty gritty of things, I've been more and more grateful uh, for. Uh, my author circle and what they've been doing. And it really, this is a big part of what, uh, a big part of one of the, of what we want to see happen um, at the press. Signum University Press, as I've said before, um, one of the things that's really going to differentiate the Signum Press from other academic presses, from other presses in general, is that Signum Press is not just about producing stuff and shipping it out to people. Right. Um, we don't. We want the relationship between, you know, the reader and the press to be much more than just we supply you books to read. We will do that too, of course. Um, but I want there, there's so much opportunity to do more than that. To really build that relationship. To really make that into a much more dynamic community. And I think that's going to be really. Um, I, well, I know it's going to be really fun because it's already really fun. So the author circles are the ways in which you can uh, you can find one of our authors or more than one of our authors uh, and subscribe. It's a monthly subscription. And um, that, that money that goes in the author circle, basically 50 percent of it goes. To, it's like divided in 50 percent between the press to help support the press and make all these things possible and supporting the author directly. So the author gets 50 percent of all of the author circle proceeds right off the top. So it's a big it's a big deal personally uh, to help to support your authors as they're working on the work in progress. Um, and uh, uh, even you know, again, as the material that will be released serially is uh, is still in is still in progress. Um, again, it's a and it's not as it's not just about the one book. Um, we have authors, for instance, who are doing more than one project uh, right now with the Signum Press, and so you'll be able to kind of talk about both of those things uh, with with that person. Um, anyway, so it's. Um, it's pretty cool. I, I have been really, really loving my author circle. I'm so grateful to them for their support. And, um, but again, it's more than just that. I mean, it, this would be awesome if it were merely a kind of Patreon thing, right? Where people, you know, just sort of do a, you know, a, a monthly, uh, you know, just give monthly to support, uh, to support the author. This does more than that. Um, it, it, it accomplishes that, but it also accomplishes, um, it also establishes a group. We, as I say, we meet every month. Um, you know that that's going to be the general pattern is that the authors are going to be meeting with their author circle every month, uh, and uh, you can you'll be able to read advanced drafts. You'll be able to sort of discuss and ask questions about like sort of what's going on. And um, and as I say, if my own experience is any indicator, uh, it is going to be uh, the author circle members are going to be a, a really important part uh, of that entire process. So. Um, Anyway, that is, it's just been awesome. I just wanted to share with you how cool that was. So what happens is, of course, all of this stuff happens. So this is our webpage. If you click on sign up now on the author circle, um, then it takes you to the BlackBerry pages. BlackBerry is the same system. As you can see, we've got our space stuff over here as well. So both the press and space both live in BlackBerry, our registration system now. 
Um, so then you can click on any. These are the five author circles we have open. Uh, the newest that we just opened up is Mike Drought. Um, this is really, really cool. So Mike is publishing two things uh, with the Signum Press. He's got uh, a book called uh, They Teach You How to Think, Why the Liberal Arts Matter. So he's going to be publishing his book with us. Uh, that's going to release pretty soon. Um, and then he's starting... Uh, his really cool project, Exploring Beowulf. Exploring Beowulf is going to be um, a predominantly audio series where he's going to be going through and doing basically audio commentary line by line on the entire poem of Beowulf. His um, his brief descri description of that to me uh, when we were talking about it back in June was he's like, I want to I want to just basically I want to get out there everything I know about Beowulf and everything I think about Beowulf. And I was like, Okay, that, that sounds awesome. I would I would like to do that. Um, so um, uh, anyway, so uh, uh, that's what. So those two things: his ongo what, what will be an ongoing audio series exploring Beowulf, and his book uh, on the liberal arts are both of them uh, being published through the press. And we are and so his author circle, uh, people members of his author circle will get to meet with Mike regularly uh, to talk about those prizes. So if you want to not only uh, listen to Mike's thoughts on Beowulf as he sort of takes you through the whole poem sentence by sentence, talking about, you know, both talking about like linguistic questions, like what's interesting about, um, you know, about the Old English in these particular lines, as well as, you know, more kind of literary interpretation stuff and historical interpretation stuff. There's all kinds of stuff he's going to be doing um, uh, in his discussions. But then you want to like then like meet with him every month and, and be able to ask questions and talk Beowulf with Mike Drought. Um, yeah, pretty awesome. So anyway, uh, so, and then of course we've got our other offers too. Jeff Lasala, who's doing, uh, who's publishing uh, a book version of his Silmarillion Primer. Uh, with us, Kay Ben Abraham, uh, who is releasing the second edition uh, of her novel, The Flower of the Cedar, and Serena Higgins, who has uh, her series of short stories. Um, uh, that she is publishing with us too. So all five of them are beginning to gather their author circle. Mine's been going for a few months already, so I have a bit of an advantage in that regard. Um, but it's never too late to jump in. There's a there's a long road still ahead in mine as well as uh, as well as everybody else. So um, that is what I wanted to make sure to to kind of share with folks because as i say it's been a really cool experience so i recommend it uh if you can do it it is such a wonderful way uh to support so if you wanted to join my author circle it's a wonderful way to support me and the work that i'm doing and my family and things like that while also being able to be a really important part uh of the process of writing my book uh which i am delighted to be in the middle of it is so much fun to write again it's I haven't really written, I mean, okay, I've written like accreditation documents and budgets, but I haven't really, I haven't written um, like this. Um, I haven't sat down and written uh, a, a, you know, a, a, you know, sustained piece of analysis like this in, in years. And it's delightful to get back to that. It's, um, I love teaching. I love the conversations that we have on Tuesday nights. Um, but the way that you think through things and the way, you know, when you're trying to, to write it in a book is just, it's, it's just a different exercise and it's, uh, it's really fun. So yeah, April accreditation documents, which does not count as creative writing. Um, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely not. So, um, great. So Gilgalady, excellent. 
question. Um, this is a this is a distinction that our press team has kind of developed, which I think is is really really important. Um, I when I first thought of the idea of author circles, I had been envisioning it as like a a sort of I don't know like a sort of VIP subscription to a book in particular. And if you were here when I was talking about my book way back in like June, um, I probably talked about it like that because that was my initial idea for it. The idea that uh, Serena Higgins and the rest of the press team had, which I think is is brilliant, um, is to detach it from a particular work and attach it instead to the person, right? Um, so it's not, you're not signing up for an author circle for a book. You're signing up for an author circle for that author, right? For To be in the circle of that author, um, which means all of the projects that that person is doing. Not probably not everything everywhere, right? Um, uh, but certainly all of the things that they're doing for Signum University Press. So again, like if you were to join Mike Drought's author circle, um, you'd be able to talk to him about both, both his liberal arts book and his exploring Beowulf. Like he's there to talk about all, you know, kind of talk about all the things that he's doing and things he might be planning um, and all that kind of thing. Um, I'm talking about my exploring the Lord of the Rings volume one, because that's what I'm currently doing right now. Something tells me it won't always be the only thing <laughs> that I'll be doing. Um, so uh, there might be some other things to talk about um, at some point soon. So uh, anyway, um, exactly, JJ. My author circle has access to all 9,000 of my hypothetical books. That's exactly right. Right now, my author circle is industriously involved uh, in, <laughs> in helping me think of new ideas for books that I'm going to write in the future. Um, but then, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll do them all and we'll talk about them all. Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, that's, um, uh, that's, <laughs> that's what we're, that's what we're working on. Um, oh man, Gogo Lady, totally planning, uh, on a Dracula book, uh, of the, of the non-Tolkien stuff that I have, you know, that we've like talked about in Mythgard Academy and stuff like that, the two books that I've wanted to write for a long time, like the two two books that I feel like have been growing within me since I was a kid, um, well, at least since my college years, are Watership Down and Dracula. Totally going to do Watership Down and Dracula projects at some point. Um, uh, but um, anyway, we'll... We'll see. All in good time. All in good time. Um, yeah. Exploring Weathertop. We'll get there, Nancy. Totally covering Weathertop thoroughly. I don't know how many chapters that's going to take, but I'm totally and thoroughly covering Weathertop. In, uh, see, but the thing, Nancy, that you have to remember, this is the big difference, right? This is one of the big differences. Among the big differences between these sessions and my book, Um are the, the fact that I am both selecting and sort of organizing things differently, right? Um, Riven, uh, not Rivendell. Rivendell did take us quite some time, of course. Uh, Weathertop took us so long in our discussions because I was, like, figuring stuff out as we went along. I mean, that was one of the places where I felt like... I, I still think I learned more about that passage, the, weather, the attack on the Dell under Weathertop. I still think I learned more about that passage in our discussions here on Tuesday nights than about any other passage. I'm trying to think of any other like big moment like that in the text where my views of it have been so transformed by our discussions, not to mention um, reenactments. 
Um, but uh, and so that's why I kept going back to it because I was working it out right. But now I worked it out kind of like now we understand it all perfectly, uh, and so therefore we can um, uh, we can go back and when I discuss it in the book, it will be a much uh, well, it'll be simplified in the sense that I'll be I'll be able to get straight to what I was uh, to what I was uh, uh, what I'm ready to talk about rather than figuring it out. Um, but um, yeah, and exactly yes, my book is going to be divided by book, not by volume. So book one, the uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings, volume one, is just going to cover to the fight to the fort. Um, just book one itself. And then what we're doing right now, book two, will come after that. So we'll see how things progress. Um, this is why, by the way, I think I'm going to have time for other books, because I do not plan to work on the next book until we finish on Tuesday nights discussing that book. So I'm not going to write volume two on book two of Fellowship of the Ring until we finish discussing book two of Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so we still have a little bit of a ways to go, of course, uh, before we get there. Uh, so, I, and I, so, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk about it until then. Um, so that means, depending on how I proceed through, uh, volume one, if I finish volume one in a reasonable amount of time, uh, then I would plan to, uh, maybe do something else or start something else at least before I, uh, start volume two. So... We'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah. Anyhow, so that is, uh, um, that's kind of what's happening and some of the things we've been talking about in my author circle. So anyway, I just wanted to, um, uh, I just wanted to invite, to tell folks about this and invite people. I know this is author circle. This is a new kind of concept. This is a, an unusual sort of thing, um, that, um, uh, but as I say, I think this is really part of the vision that we have for the Signum University Press. It's a, a different kind of relationship. And this sort of access to the author, the way in which really just kind of acknowledging that the reader is always a crucial part of the work and, and, and kind of, re I don't know, uh, removing this idea of like, you know, the author off on his or her own, you know, uh, sort of doing his thing and then, you know, mailing in the chapters or whatever. Um, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, by the reader, for the reader, of the reader, something like that, Moto, something like that. Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, so we just finally launched these. So these are monthly subscriptions. We just finally launched this on BlackBerry. Um, BlackBerry, of course, uh, James Tauber of the Digital Tolkien Project has custom uh, made BlackBerry uh, for us here at Signum. Um, and so he finally got the chance to uh, uh, add in our monthly subscription process here, uh, which is a little complicated. So we got that installed in BlackBerry. And now we can do the author circles here. So that's why we've just recently been able to release those, just announced those a couple weeks ago. So anyhow, um, all right, let us get back to the text then. Um, I could digress and talk about the books I plan to write <laughs> for a quite long period of time. Um, but instead, let's go back to the text. So this is the passage we talked about last time. Not covering it again, 
but um, just wanted to remember the context of the interruption. Um, so remember, we have Frodo's relief. We talked a great deal about Frodo's relief and the way in which Tolkien, by introducing this the way that he has, by introducing the dark and secret way, uh, the nameless dark and secret way in the way that he has, um, has created this dread right for us um, that we are sharing with Frodo, uh, such that the extremely dangerous sounding trip over the high mountain pass in January sounds uh, uh, a relief in comparison. And then we were looking at Gandalf's uh, actual words, his characterization of things. From signs that we have seen lately, I fear that the Redhorn Gate may be watched, and also I have doubts of the weather that is coming up behind. Snow may come. We must go with all the speed that we can. Even so, it will take us more than two marches before we reach the top of the pass. Dark will come early this evening. We must leave as soon as you can get ready. Then, I will add a word of advice, if I may, said Boromir. I was born under the shadow of the White Mountains and know something of journeys in the high places. We shall meet bitter cold, if no worse, before we come down on the other side. It will not help us to keep so secret that we are frozen to death. When we leave here, where there are still a few trees and bushes, now, uh, when we leave here, where there are still a few trees and bushes, each of us should carry a faggot of wood, as large as he can bear. And Bill could take a bit more, couldn't you, lad? said Sam. The pony looked at him mournfully. Very well, said Gandalf, but we must not use the wood, not unless it is a choice between fire and death. Okay. Um... Here is the unsolicited advice uh, from Boromir. Um, I will add a word of advice if I may. Yes, poor Bill is being voluntold by Sam. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, okay, let's start with Bill and Sam. Uh, we might as well. Let's start with Bill and Sam. Uh, I agree that Sam is rather projecting onto Bill, right? We saw Sam's own willingness literally to bear the burdens, right? To have uh, an unusually heavy pack. Um, you know, I can take a bit more, sir. My packet is quite light, he says stoutly and untruthfully to Frodo, uh, right way back at the beginning of chapter three. Um such that Frodo threatened, uh, you know, personally to police the packing and make sure that things were distributed fairly and that Sam was not actually taking too much on himself. And so Sam, uh, Sam's volunteering bill uh, to take more baggage than he already has um, is, is, tells us something interesting. Right. There's a um, there's a kind of there's a kind of identification with Bill that this shows from Sam. Right. He is projecting onto Bill. Yes, but he's. But I want to be careful about that. When we say that people are projecting things onto someone. Well, we can mean a bunch of different things by that. Right. Um, the particular kind of projection that Sam is doing here is, um, I guess what I would call 
like inclusive projection. That is, he assumes that Bill feels about things exactly the same way that he does. He projects onto Bill his own good intentions, right? His own, you know, sort of positive, uh, positive things. Um, and by positive things, I mean positive attitudes, right? Um, it's, it's reverse empathy in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. His own virtue. Yeah. He is projecting his own virtues on Bill. He is seeing in Bill his own virtues. Um, and yet, ironically, um, interestingly, we also get the narrator's comment, the pony looked at him mournfully. Who do you think wrote that sentence? Frodo or Sam? Interesting distribution. <laughs> Bill. <laughs> in general, in general, I think, as we've said before, I think that most of the, the extra bonus inclusions of Sam talk are probably Frodo, right? Um, I mean, it's one of the most clear editorial cues we get in the story, isn't it? Uh, you know, on the stairs of Kirithon Gulf, we remember ahead to that, where Frodo is going to imagine the theoretical reader of the book clamoring for more of Sam's talk. And this, of course, Frodo is saying, right, so in the, uh, in the you know, imagined, uh, the, the sort of imaginary market research that Frodo is conducting in that conversation with Sam, imagining how his audience, the future audience of the story is likely to respond, one of, the, one of Frodo's clear assertions is that the audience is obviously going to be clamoring for more Sam, right? Um, and so I am very inclined to believe that... I suspect that there were many people making side comments at various points. But notice how in this chapter we have consistently gotten Sam's point of view. That's happened more than once already when... Sam becomes the, um, the, the voice, the voice of reaction. He's like the man on the street, <laughs> right? We, we get what Gandalf says, we get what Aragorn says, and we get Sam's re reaction to things. Um, and, um, I get that it has, it, it sounds like, it sounds like, uh, an insertion, right? It's, uh, somebody has gone out of his way to tell us to give us more of Sam's talk. And I suspect that it was Frodo. I can't imagine, as I said before, I can't imagine uh, that Sam would do that himself necessarily. Um, and you're right, Fort Thoughtless. It has a wonderful effect 
for us as readers, because as Fourth Dauntless says, Sam is probably the least knowledgeable about what's going on around him, so the reader takes on his perspective. Yes, and this is this tends to be the job of the hobbits in general. We will see this job being uh, undertaken by both Merry and Pippin when they're separate from the rest of the company and separate from each other, of course. Uh, so this, um, uh, this definitely, um, yeah, yeah, this, this, it, it definitely serves that function. Absolutely. Um, but that last sentence, the pony looked at him mournfully. Would Sam write that? I guess I'm leaning towards Frodo, both for the reason I was just mentioning, that most of the extra inserted Sam talk, I think, generally is Frodo. Um, but that Frodo, if, again, we proceed for a moment under the hypothesis that it's Frodo, um, if Frodo is inserting this he's not just giving us a cheerful uh, another little window into Sam's Samness <laughs> right um, but he's also I think remembering with affection Again, under the hypothesis that Frodo wrote this, I believe that Frodo would be remembering Sam's relationship with Bill with affection. Remembering his closeness to the pony. Um, the interactions between them. The way in which he's projecting onto the pony. Um, and even the... <laughs> what would seem to be... I mean... This sentence is funny on several levels, right? On the one hand, it's funny because Sam says confidently that Bill could take more. Uh, and the pony does not, in fact, seem to be of one mind with Sam on this point, right? But, of course, that's also a joke itself. Um, I get The joke is not just that Bill doesn't actually agree with Sam. The joke is that Bill is understanding this conversation in the first place, um, which, of course, itself picks up on um, Sam's earlier comment of that animal can nearly talk. Right. Um, and so it, it's kind of even in the in this moment of comical um, dis emotional disunity with Sam. Right, that Bill appears to be experiencing, that in itself confirms Sam's earlier comment about the intelligence and uh, about how, how Bill can nearly talk, or at least certainly seems to understand the conversation that's going on around him. Right. Um, yeah, so Kurtzimus is asking, does anyone but Sam believe that Bill understands conversation? Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know what the others believe about it. Um, we'll get a little bit more of that later on. Um, 
in the farewell to Bill, we will get other people commenting on Bill. And so we will begin to see some of the other views on Bill from around the company um, at that later point. But for now, I don't know, Kurtzimus, that I think that that really bears on this particular moment. What I mean is, it doesn't matter if anybody but Sam believes it. Sam believes it and acts like it's true, and Frodo knows that Sam believes it and acts like it's true. And if Frodo wrote this, he would be writing it in such a way as to tease Sam about that whole thing, right? Um, the fact that he would insert this sentence suggesting a, you know, comical difference of opinion between Sam and the pony. Um, uh, I don't know. It makes it makes Sam and Bill seem less like, you know, one attached unit and more like partners in a buddy cop movie or something like that. Right. Um, there is really, um, in fact, it's um, if anything, I suspect that the pony is or sorry, that the narrator is actually. Yeah, like Turner and Hooch, the Middle Earth edition, something like that. Highlander wins, something like that. Yeah, I think more like Wallace and Gromit, uh, evil Dr. Cannon, uh, except the equine version. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, but I was going to say, the narrator almost suggests there's hobbitry going on here. Sam is being teased in this little two sentence paragraph. Um, but what I love most about that sentence, the pony looked at him mournfully, is the narrator seems almost to imply that Bill himself is engaging in hobbitry, that Bill is teasing Sam. Um, and that is pretty awesome, right? If Bill not only has nearly uh, the power of human speech, is if he's not only approaching the power of human speech, um, or at least of human comprehension, but also has a sense of humor in alignment with the sense of humor of Sam and the others. I, uh, man, um, I think that's, uh, yeah, exactly. He has something like Hobbit wit, Amorea. Um, I think that that's kind of awesome. Um, I think that's kind of awesome. Uh, and certainly fun. Uh, yes, and Burra Hobbit, I agree with you. That does sound like something that Frodo would do. Um, a more sophisticated way of showing what Sam says about Bill understanding him. Yes, we're just going to repeat it, right? Um, we're just going to show this interaction between the two of them, right? Um, which, at the very least, indicates Sam's views and feelings. Whether or not we, you know... Whether or not we suspect that the narrator is himself projecting something onto Bill here with comical intent, right, or not. Uh, but, Dan, I agree with you. Bill is better at hobbitry than, than Aragorn is. He's a natural, right? Aragorn a little bit awkward. Bill, he's got it down. He's got it down. Um, and, um, yes, and Vardendil, I agree with you. Um, he, Bill's load would be lighter, um, because they've been traveling and presumably eating uh, many of the supplies that Bill was loaded with. So yes, um, his load will almost certainly have gotten lighter uh, and he could uh, 
and he could pack more. Um, that seems um, uh, that seems quite right. Um, so, okay, uh, Geiger, I still subscribe to Mike Drought's theory uh, that the Thinking Fox passage is Bilbo as narrator. Um, that that's it's right around the time when Bilbo uh, when Bilbo's narration trails off. Um, he has time. Remember, he still is planning to be the primary narrator of the story, um, which is why he gets them to tell them all about his adventures when they're all in Rivendell together, um, and presumably began on chapter three at least while he was in uh, while he was you know while they were there possibly or maybe while the quest was going on. But it's apparent certainly apparent to Sam uh, later on, as we will remember ahead, that he didn't really get that far. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, oh, sorry. Freebird, I apologize. So, the game that we're playing, I should just care for those of you who have caught up, many will remember or whatever. Um, we're not suggesting that narrator is someone other than Tolkien. We are um, playing a game which I believe Tolkien has invited us to play. It is, in a sense, a fictional game in that we know that when Tolkien wrote the story originally, he did not write it. He did not have this in mind as he wrote it. Indeed, many of the elements, many of the uh, of the things that form the shape of this game. Um, are uh, things that only really came into focus after the whole book was written. But, of course, I'm referring to the note on Shire Records and some of the references at the end of the book um, that give an account of the textual history of the book that we're reading. And the things that we're told, we know that the book was originally started by Bilbo, that Frodo took it over and wrote most of it, that Sam then edited it, after the fact, and added some bits. Um, and then we know, what. moreover, that that copy, that complete copy, was then brought to Gondor and then uh, recopied and also, again, edited, and some bits were added to it. Um, and the name that's attached to that is Findigil, King's writer, who, um, to whom we are briefly introduced in the note on Shire Records. And then, of course, we have the modern translator, Tolkien, uh, who is, also, is the immediate narrator of the whole thing, of course, because he's the translator. Uh, and it is presumably the translator's voice that refers to things like express trains back in Chapter 1, right? Okay. Um, so... That um, So there have been several points um, earlier on. This is a question we've been coming back to and that I think would be, uh, would be delightful. Wouldn't it be fun someday when the text is in the public domain to have a Lord of the Rings multicolor text with uh, like color-coded by who we think wrote each bit? That would be super fun. Wouldn't that be fun? Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so... We have, on at many points before, played this game where we are going along with the sort of fictional authorial frame, or the, again, the fictional textual history that the book has given, and asked ourselves, from the point of view of that historical, that fictional 
historical textual framework that Tolkien has given us. Um, who do we think wrote any a particular given sentence in the story? Um, and uh, there have been several times where I thought uh, that this was um, uh, that this was really um, really illuminating. Actually, um, I am. I am still super convinced, for instance, that that paragraph on Arwen, the description of Arwen uh, that we get in the uh, the banquet in Bilbo's honor in Rivendell, totally a Findigil King's writer insertion. That like has that has Gondorian scribe written all over it, right? Um, and um, anyhow, yeah. So I, I so, so sorry. So that's the game that we're playing here. We're not we're not trying to take any of this away from Tolkien uh, as the author, um, but instead, again, remember that this is what Tolkien's day job was like. That is reading a received text and considering various pieces of evidence, maybe direct textual evidence in the force in, 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 in the in the shape of multiple manuscripts or maybe other internal um, cues um, of uh, a stylistic cues perhaps or circumstantial cues um, uh, that would lead you to think like okay there were two different scribes at work and this is scribe a and that's scribe B or this is a work which is in fact a composite work which was composed by two different people or this was written by this person with editorial editions by another person later on and here's how we know that um, all of this stuff is you know some of the stuff that Tolkien was dealing with again all the time in his day job uh, as a medievalist um, uh, and so he's provided us the framework to kind of play that game. Uh, he's invited us gently, I think, invited us to play this game. Um, so um, uh, anyway, so I, 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 I find it a fascinating game. We haven't been talking about it in every sentence, but there are moments like this one when that sentence jumps out at me and I think it it's really relevant to this, right? Um, and one of the things that it does, think about the question I was asking here, who do we think we wrote, who do we think wrote that sentence? And really it's, um, I, I think it's definitely not Bilbo. I think it's, um, uh, I think it's almost certainly not Findigil King's writer. I, this does not sound like Findigil King. This is, I, I cannot imagine comic rule like the Gondorian scribe going back and adding comic relief right that's not not to mention hobbitry still less pony hobbitry pony hobbit pony hobbitry right I mean like it's, it's I don't I I um I think uh, uh I think more highly of the professionalism of the Gondorian scribes than that um and it certainly does seem more like firsthand experience belongs bond at the very least even if not exactly a uh, uh, a first-hand memory um, necessarily. Like, I don't think it would have to be true that Frodo has a really distinct memory of, like, the look that um, uh, that Bill gave to Sam at that moment um, for to make this a, a, a true and effective capturing of the relationship between Bill and Sam, right? But anyway, um, but not only that, this is taking a certain amount of liberty with characters in the story, at the very least, which it's hard for me to imagine Findigil King's writer doing. 
Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, anyhow, uh, this is, um, oh man, yes, you are right. Bricktails and Jackie are talking about, uh, Eowyn's experience as it's recorded. Um, that will be interesting. And I do agree with you, Bricktails. I think that, uh, I think I agree with you that there are some, um, uh, 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 Gillian, um, candidates there. Uh, but anyhow, um, and yes, Arden Crayon, Gandalf is going to do this same kind of thing with the, with the book of Mazarbal. Um, that is, they're going to be looking at it and, and now there's some really obvious cues, right? Oh, look, I hear it. It switches from, you know, from runes, uh, into Tengwar, right? I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say someone else is writing now, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Are the appendices included in that multi-author idea, Mary? Yes. Yes, they are. Um, definitely are. Uh, it is... Um, yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Because, of course, again, think back in the prologue to the things that we're told about, like, the later research trips of Mary and Pippin in their visit, like, it, you know, Pippin's visits uh, to Minas Tirith and bringing back a lot of the lore of Gondor. So... Does that mean that, like, Appendix A, for instance, has been processed in the Shire, um, dealing with the, um, uh, you know, dealing with records that he learned and stories that he heard in Gondor? Or is it a Gondorian insertion? Yeah, you absolutely can ask that question. Once we get to the appendices, then we start, then Merry and Pippin come into play as well as potential authors or at least editors. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, the herb lore of the Shire in particular belongs to explicitly. Right there, we're told exactly who is the author, uh, who is the author there. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> brick tales, I agree. Um, the appendices, I may just have to, um, bequeath <laughs> to somebody <laughs> if I can make it to the Grey Havens. I'm not sure I'm getting past the Grey Havens, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, okay. Um, all right. Um, what am I talking about? The poem. The book. We 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 skipped a lot. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we are training up our kids as heirs, Valori, but the irony is, right, that um, <laughs> my son will probably be pretty old <laughs> by the time we get to the end. Um, but anyhow, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. Uh, we didn't even get to we didn't get to Boromir's interruption yet. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna say I, th I think my vote is Frodo. I, I think that one fits best to me because again, when I this is this is how I always try to this is how I always make this this uh, kind of interpretation decision. Think it through in both ways, right? Um, what does it suggest if that sentence is Frodo? Like, what's the hypothesis? And what's the hypothesis if it's Sam? 
if it's Sam, why would Sam write that? What 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 would this paragraph be saying if it were Sam who included that? Um, the main thing I would say there is Sam would write this sentence um, to include a fond memory of Bill. Um, uh, he wanted a little bit more Bill the Pony uh, in the action, a little bit more acknowledgement of Bill's role. Um, and... Uh, um, yeah, so it's um, I I could see that the thing that uh, the thing that fits the the reason it feels more right that it should be Frodo is the air of teasing about it. Um, if I imagine Sam writing it, then I imagine that his motivation must primarily be a kind of um, earnest and affectionate memorial of Bill, right? Um, he wanted to insert the Bill reference to make sure that the reader isn't forgetting good old Bill, who is helping them carry everything up over the mountains, and that it's not just the bipeds which are going to be suffering in the upcoming snows, right? Um, but... The tone, again, if Frodo wrote it, it begins to have this entire uh, air of fun and teasing, which feels right for Frodo. Um, now, for Thoughtless, I agree with you that, in general, hobbitry doesn't go down to Sam, but I would... I would urge you to remember Frodo talks about Sam making him laugh and that that was the number one reason why he, why his fictive target audience for the book in the future would be demanding more Sam talk because it makes them laugh. Um, and so we don't see Frodo speaking hobbitry and giving Sam a hard time in the moment. You're right about that. Hobbitry doesn't tend to go down the class slope in that way. Um, you can tease your betters uh, or your peers, uh, but if you tease the servants, you're on the edge of being, you know, abusive, basically, right? Um, however, yeah, Frodo... After the fact, teasing Sam, uh, in inviting the reader to see why Sam was so delightful. I mean, look, we all love Sam, don't we? Right? The narrator has succeeded in making us all love Sam uh, and seeing how much good he does. But again, not just in being like, oh, that's Sam, he has such a noble character. But in laughing at and with Sam as well. Um, and yes, Trifle, I agree. Uh, it's very gentle. Um, it's very gentle. Yes, Mary's it was a compliment, and so of course not true is a much harsher piece of hobbitry, and it's not like that. Um, so, so yes... 
that seems to me very much a kind of thing that Frodo would do. Um, to invite us to to smile when we read about Sam. To invite us to um, again laugh with him, even laugh at him affectionately. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're right, Graham. Uh, Graham, by the time this was written, Sam had become mayor and had been elevated to the same social class as Frodo. Yeah, even had become the master at Bag End, right? And Frodo, if it had not yet happened in Frodo's time, when he was writing most of this narrative, Frodo foresaw it um, and knows full well that it is going to be the master of Bag End and the, you know... Uh, a Frodo foretells and predicts Sam's children in order, right? So um, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But uh, uh, so he 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 has a vision. At sooner or later, Frodo is going to have a very clear vision indeed of Sam as you know the great person in the Shire that he is in fact going to go on to be. So I agree in that. Um, in that sense, Graham, um, we are going to get... It is a little bit more appropriate to invite people to laugh at Sam, uh, to, to have more hobbitry sort of at his expense there. Um, <laughs> okay, now, Bearded Elf, you're right. Let's stop interrupting Boromir's interruption. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, okay, Boromir's interruption. Well, out a word of advice, if I may. Never mind. I don't, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, Boromir is giving advice on the one hand. I've, and I, I have to be honest, I've never really known exactly what to do with Boromir's advice here. On the one hand, it seems unwelcome. That is, Gandalf doesn't seem to like it. Um, okay, Gandalf says sort of grudgingly, um, but we're not going to burn it unless it's a choice between fire and death, right? Like, Gandalf is like, this is kind of a bad idea, right? Um, because, of course, remember, Gandalf was like, if we cross the high pass, we're going to be visible. Like, they'll see us moving for miles, right? I mean, like, apparently, there's some serious potential exposure of them. To, if, if this land is full of spies, I mean, there's no hiding from crows up there, which, ironically, in the movie is exactly where they attempt to hide from the crows. But anyway, um, I... And then, uh, so if we light a fire up there, we go halfway up the mountain or three quarters of the way up the mountain and then light a campfire. I mean, they put the beacons on mountaintops for a reason, right? You'll be able to see that for goodness knows how far. Really, really far, right? You wouldn't even have to be an active spy. Anybody wandering innocently through the land is going to be like, oh, look, somebody's halfway up Garothros. That's interesting, right? Um, exactly. It, it basically is making a very small beacon, right, um, on the hill. So, and th so th that's Gandalf's expressed concern. Um, secrecy. Man, boy, a fire. Um, if, uh, 
if making a fire in the wilderness, um, you know, is, uh, is the best way to say, here we are bar shouting, according to Sam in the Dell under weather top to do it on top of a mountain, the highest mountain in the area is shouting very, very loud, right? Here we are. Uh, so, so yeah. So on the one hand, Gandalf suggests that his contribution is not welcome and short-sighted or something, right? Contrary to the idea of secrecy. Um, second, on the other hand, Oh, wait, hang on. I've backed myself into a corner. I think I'm going to have three hands here. I'm going to go all Zephod Beeblebrox on this, I guess. On the second hand, um, it also seems like a really presumptuous piece, like a really obvious thing to say, right? I mean, like, if I could just interject, we're going up a mountain in January. And when you go up a very high mountain in January, wait for it. I'm about to bestow my wisdom. It's likely to be cold. Okay? If it's very cold, what we might want is a fire to warm us. Right? So, here's what we can do in order to facilitate this whole technology of campfires. We could bring wood with us. Because, by the way, did you know that on high mountains, there are no trees that grow up there? Right? They just don't. Right? So, if you want to build a campfire in order to keep warm in a place where it's cold, you need to bring the wood with you. Right? And, like, uh, <laughs> this, this... And who's he lecturing? You know, as... I, I Sorry, I didn't catch who it was. As somebody was saying... Um, Aragorn and Gandalf have possibly climbed more mountains than Boromir has ever seen, right? Um, so, uh, yes, sure, it might get cold in the mountains. And if it gets cold, we might want a fire to warm us. And so, again, so on the one hand, it's a disastrously bad idea from a secrecy standpoint. On the other hand, it's like a Captain Obvious suggestion. And it's hard to imagine that Aragorn would not have ever even... That Aragorn was like, oh, right. Yeah, we're going in. We're like one of the primary... One of Gandalf's primary objections to crossing over the mountains is that we might all die of hypothermia. But neither one of us thought of fire. My gosh, that's true. If we just lit a fire, we could stay alive. Yeah, wish we'd have thought of that, Boromir. Again, it's hard to imagine this never occurred to either one of them as a possibility. But on the third hand, here's where I have to bring in Zaphod Beeblebrox's surgical edition. On the third hand, he's quite right. And they are going to need it. The choice between fire and death is in fact going to come. And the fire is indeed the fire and the wood which Boromir tells them to pack is indeed going to save their lives. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, I am... Um, yeah. 
this is why I've never really quite known what to do with Boromir's suggestion. That is, it's simple enough, the suggestion. Um, what does it tell us? How are we supposed to respond to it? That's the thing I've never really gotten. Um, is it rude? He doesn't deliver it rudely. I mean, we must first acknowledge that as we saw throughout the Council of Elrond, Boromir is extremely polite and diplomatic here. I will add a word of advice if I may. If I may, very courteous, right? He's not, he's not asserting anything. He's not just saying, like, I, I'm a really important person, and so obviously you should be listening to me. Um, in fact, not only does he not take that tone at the beginning, but even saying, I was born under the shadow of the White Mountains and know something of journeys in the high places. Like, he kind of gives his resume, but not the resume you might think, right? He's not like... I will add a word of advice, if you may, because I am the commander general and I am used to being in charge, right? Everybody listens to me because I'm Boromir for crying out loud, right? He doesn't pull rank here. He's just like, I'm going to add a word of advice and I'm going to contextualize that by saying I do have some personal experience with mountain journeys. And so therefore, that is the context from where I'm not saying this because I'm a commander. I'm not asserting authority over this party in any way. I'm just saying, I'm just tentatively offering advice as a person who has some experience. He doesn't even assert that he has a lot. He doesn't claim that he is a better mountaineer than anybody else in the party. And know something of journeys in the high places is a pretty humble way to talk about that. Right? I mean, who knows? Maybe he was like mountaineering every weekend his whole life. We don't know. Um, but he doesn't assert it. He doesn't claim it. Right? He doesn't, he's not claiming expertise. He's just claiming some, uh, some experience. Um, so, again, his approach here is um, his approach here is very diplomatic, very courteous. Extremely so. And he's not I don't hear him, like, grumbling about his authority or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, he's not, um, he's not pulling rank. He's not attempting to pull rank. He doesn't seem to be disgruntled about not being in charge, though that has to be a weird experience for him. Um, other than times when he was riding somewhere with his father, uh... Boromir has been in charge like his whole life, right? I mean, Boromir uh, has been second in charge in Gondor and first in charge in the field for decades now. For him to be in a, you know, a group of people like this on a mission and not to be in charge should sound really weird. I mean, should, I mean, that it would be really weird for him. It should to us sound like we should, we should remember that he is not accustomed at all to that role. Um, and this, I think on the one hand is him handling it really well. On the other hand, you don't hear anybody else piping up with advice. <laughs> Most of the rest of them are like, I think Ar Ar Aragorn and Gandalf have got this right. 
Um, it is a sore trial for such a man, Green Grey Dragon. You are correct. Um, and, and it's a trial which he has thus far passed very well. And I completely agree, Bearded Elf. Um, welcome, by the way, Bearded Elf. Uh, that he is being super polite here. Definitely very polite. Um, but. And he is, I think, saving the party in advance. Um we don't know for a fact that had it not been for Boromir's unsol- like we do know that the ability to light a fire up in the pass is in fact going to save their lives. Like that is true. We definitely know that the thing that Boromir suggests is going to lead directly to their preservation in the pass. We don't know for sure that they would all certainly have died if it hadn't been for Boromir. For Boromir suggesting bringing the firewood, I mean. That is to say, we don't know that anybody else suggested it yet, but we don't know that Aragorn wasn't going to tell them to do this, I don't know what, later in the day or whatever. Um, uh, It seems to me rather likely that either he or Gandalf probably were. He probably. Um, Aragorn probably. Uh, Gandalf seems more concerned about secrecy than about safety. Which brings me back to what I was saying last time about better for us all to freeze to death and the ring to be lost in the mountains than to go somewhere where the ring might be recovered. But, um, yeah, yeah. And no, for Thaos, I'm not wanting to scorn Boromir. I'm not. I'm just, this is what I'm, I was explaining, I was laying on a little thick there, I know, when I was doing my second hand. But what I, it's why I'm saying I'm not sure how we're supposed to respond. Um, what we know is that they do bring wood and the wood saves them. And we know that the narrator of the story has gone out of his way to credit Boromir with that, right? Our attention is drawn to Boromir here before we go up in the mountains. Um, whether or not Aragorn was going to say this anyway, uh, soon, it's still good advice. The advice that Boromir gives might not have turned the tide. Maybe they would have done it anyway, but it doesn't matter. He still gave it and it's still good. He's still credited with giving it. And it still does, in fact, turn out to be foresighted and good advice. And this is, by the way, an interesting thing because there's uh, we are going to see Boromir distinguish himself positively later on a couple occasions. Most of the times that Boromir is going is going to be um, in warrior or warrior-adjacent ways. We're going to see his courage. We're going to see his uh, prowess in battle. Um, Here, what we see, and this is virtually unique, we are going to see Boromir's 
forward planning. Um, that he is thinking ahead um, uh, to what could happen and how they, what problems they might have and how they could circumvent those. Uh, that's, you know, he is not um, Boromir, not just a not just a pretty face and a beefy arm, right? Um, he uh, has, you know, thinking and planning ability too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and you're right. You guys are wanting to talk about his snow-moving capabilities. That is true. But that is... We're not, we're not, we're not quite there yet, so I'm trying to... Uh, uh, Boromir as snowplow is for a future class. Not too far in the future. Um, will we get there this year? Yeah, probably a January thing. Um, we'll probably get to the top of Karathras about the same time that the company does, actually. I betcha. Um, but in any case, uh, we are... Um, I agree. But as, as I say, we're not there yet. Here we see him doing two things, both of which we have every reason to think are typical of him. One, he is being courteous and diplomatic, which we have seen him be consistently uh, through the Council of Elrond, for sure. Uh, forthright, willing to speak his mind, um, with a relatively high opinion of Gondor and perhaps of himself, and yet not unjustly so. And with, as I say, courtesy and diplomacy. And we see him that same way here. Um, the, But also that he's a good leader, not just a fighter, but also a good leader. And accustomed to thinking ahead, planning ahead, anticipating difficulties and thinking about how they can be avoided or circumvented in order to look out for the well-being of the people under his command. If he's a good leader, if he's a good general, he, that will be a thing that he does regularly, not just charging into battle with his sword. And we get very little evidence of that element of Boromir's character, but this is one. This is one place where we're, where we've gone, I, and I think pretty far out of the way, to bring Boromir. And we didn't need this Boromir passage here. We didn't even have to draw attention to the fact that they're bringing firewood with them, going out of their way to bring firewood with them. Um, that, of course, is a nice little piece of foreshadowing. Um, but Boromir's involvement in that moment is a fairly. Um, uh, is a fairly gratuitous opportunity to bring in Boromir uh, and show us these kinds of elements of his uh, of his of his character. Um, yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, and I agree. Um, the Hobbit narrators would have particular reason to remember this, and and again, and be grateful for it, even if, even if it were to be untrue that Aragorn would have thought to bring wood too. Again, we don't know. We have no possible evidence of that. Um, uh, but uh, <clears throat> but anyway, again, even if we, um, even if, even without that possibility, the story still gives credit to Boromir. For suggesting it, and again, I certainly can imagine the Hobbit narrators 
being um, grateful in retrospect for that. Um, does Gandalf poo-poo it because it's a bad idea or because Boromir suggested it? I don't think he's exactly poo-pooing it. I don't think he's... I don't think he's saying, oh, fire, what a stupid idea that is, Boromir, right? I mean, he's not... He's not saying... I think what he's telling them is, don't think this means we're roasting s'mores tonight for fun, right? Brace yourself to be cold. You're going to be cold, yeah, up in the mountains. But you know what? We're going to shiver and we're going to like it. Because if we light a fire up there, whoo boy, beacon for everybody to see, right? So we can light a fire. But only unless it's a choice, only, you know, uh, if it's a choice between fire and death, right? We're not talking about inconvenience here. Like, what's a little frostbite between friends, right? It's more important that we, that we keep, that we remain secret. So I think that Gandalf there is not, again, I don't think that he's heaping scorn on the idea of lighting a fire at all. I just think it's, he's making it very clear, this is not recreational, this is not even... Um, for the sake of comfort, this is like literally to stave off death, um, because yeah, so I think he's just sort of making that clear. Don't don't get the wrong idea about this. Um. <laughs> oh man, Wobe was just saying the fewer fingers the party has, the harder it will be for them to use the ring. That's one way to reduce temptation, isn't it? I, I really want to seize the ring, but I can't. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, I think with that observation, I think that um, I think that I think that we're done. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. <laughs> it is a rather dark note to end on. But funny. But funny. Um Yes. I and Dan okay, no, Dan, I will end with that observation, because that's true. Um Boromir's line, it will not help us to keep so secret that we are frozen to death, is getting pretty pretty close to snarky. Yes, I agree. Um after all of his polite and courteous diplomacy in the first two, in the first, like, two sentences. Um, he does indulge in just the tiniest bit of... Um, that sen- doesn't that sentence have just a, just a touch of... But no doubt I don't need to tell you this, oh, wise leader who is in charge of this party because it isn't me. Right. Just a hint... Just a hint that, like, yes, secrecy is important, but maybe, right? Um, it's not going to help to keep us so secret that we are frozen to death, Gandalf, right? Um, not exactly critical. A little bit snarky. Um, yeah, just a hint. Uh, just a hint of criticism. Um, maybe more than a hint of criticism. Um yeah, from anyone other than Boromir, I think it was just hobbitry. Exactly. I don't think that uh, Boromir is exactly joking, or maybe. What do you think? Do you think Boromir might be attempting hobbitry here? 
He's been traveling with him for a month now. He will have picked up on the, you know, on the theory by now. Um, do you think he's having a go? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think he's got to be... I don't think he can... I mean, I don't think he's likely to be much better at it than Aragorn is. Um, but um, in any case... Um, we will get more Boromir conversation, but this this moment is an important one for Boromir. Um, as somebody was pointing out before, I think uh, Stephen, I think it was you, JJ, was saying that we hadn't. Um, this is the first we've heard from Boromir since the blowing, the horn blowing incident, um, and we're going to get more from him fairly soon uh, and fairly consistently, and so. I'm, it's one of the things I'm going to be really interested to look at is the dynamics between Boromir and the rest of the party, but Boromir and the leadership in particular. But um, uh, anyway, okay. Anyhow, we will see. All right. Um, I, I'm going to let everybody go. It's getting late. Um, for those of you who are just here for the book discussion tonight, thank you very much. Uh, it is field trip time. So we're going to go in game here. Good evening, Valoria. How are you tonight? Good evening. I'm doing great. Okay, so the big question, uh, is Dwayne still there? I don't know. Yeah. Until tomorrow, Dwayne is still with us. Wait, hang on. What? I'm not hearing you there? Until tomorrow, Dwayne is indeed with us. Okay, Dwayne is still still there? Yeah. He, he may leave tomorrow? He will leave tomorrow. I, I do appreciate how much they, they, they do take our input into things. Yeah. Um, well, because, uh, yeah, I wanted to see if this mysterious gift of uh, the Valar has um, been moved. Um, That's really something for uh, something to figure out after the next big pack. Yeah, yeah. Yep, so we'll see. So I, I think we established in uh, earlier things, like uh, back when we met Aragorn and Bree, I believe, I think we established that humans ha don't really have hobbitry so much as they have snark and sarcasm. Like, that's their humor. That's how they bond. Yes. Wait, so you're saying that humans do sarcasm, but not exactly yes. hobbitry. Not exactly hobbitry. It's, it's different. Right. It's darker. It's a little meaner, and it's half of it's under your breath, you know? Okay. Like we saw a lot more of that among, you know, Barlaman and Aragorn and Bill Fernie and all these guys, when they're trying to be funny, they generally just make really dark observations. Well, Aragorn does that, but he's pretty grim. I mean, there aren't that many times when I'm really convinced Aragorn is trying to be funny. Um um, he is funny when he's sarcastic. It's when he attempts hobbitry that he falls right. flat. When he attempts to tease people. Uh, well, it's more when he attempts... It's, it's a bit like Gandalf trying to be cheerful. It just doesn't work. Yeah. See, okay, JJ, I don't think that Barlowman's woolly-footed slow coach is hobbitry, exactly. No, it's, it's snark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's... Uh... No, I, I mean, he's... Yeah, it's insult comedy. Yeah. Um, yeah, a, a bit of 
bluster in there, yeah, and insult comedy, but not what you would call wordplay. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's a fascinating... This would be a fascinating, uh, like, forms of humor among cultures of Middle-earth would be a really interesting discussion. Yeah. And Elrond has mastered both, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he does he very well. Okay, so we're headed back to uh, What's-Her-Face's convoy. Gerwin's convoy in Cardolan? Yep. Okay. We have a mile marker there. Yes. Yeah, back to the milestone that we picked up last time. Yes. And let's go back up to the capital of Cardolan, apparently, on the hill. Sounds good. I don't think Boromir's being presumptuous. I think he just forgets who he's talking to. Remember, he's from the sunny, sunny south. Yes. Okay? So, like, this would be like someone in Milan trying to explain to people in Calabria the dangers of snowy mountains. You know? Like, so you think he's just forgetting him. where he is, basically, or whom he's, he's talking to? where he is. This makes absolute sense if he's talking to Gondorian troops who have you know, seen snow maybe a couple of times in their life, but this is like a, a Floridian trying to tell Minnesotans about snow cities. Yes. Yes. A little bit. Or at least, uh, I don't know, a Floridian who goes to Colorado to ski a lot or something. Um, yes, exactly. Or, or someone who's, who's uh, you know, who likes to go cliff hiking in haunted vacations or something like that. It, like, it makes perfect sense when you think about the people he normally tells this. Yeah. Yeah. Also, did like, he get lost in these mountains for a bunch of months? Who, Boromir? Yeah, when he was trying to find Rivendell. It took a year, and you said he got lost in the mountains or something. I don't know if it was the Eaglins or something like that, but, like, he got hung up quite a bit. Yeah, he uh, he did not seem to take the uh, direct route. Yeah, um, so that might have been some of Gandalf's reaction there. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, you're the perfect person to tell us how to get around right. these mountains. Right, right. Um well, I mean, if you look at the map, Tharbat isn't exactly on a straight shot. no. It's not, though, yeah, I mean, it's no, no, at least it, on the Greenway, and so therefore. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It was a bit hidden, but yeah. Hey, we got a bright, sunny day. Let's, uh, let's take advantage of it before we talk so long that the sun goes down. Okay. Oh, I, I seem to be not in the raid. Not that it matters horribly, but. Oh, yeah, uh, that's because you, you blipped out there. Yeah, I did blip out, as I have been wont to do. That's weird, you still have your marker on. Yeah. I get that must have gotten on before I left. And, um, okay. So. I'm just looking from here at the facing of like from the north. This is the main approach from the north. Hang on a second. I'm gonna come up here. I like that blue thread of stone you see up there. Yes. Yes, I do too. Okay, so the Greenway is very old. The Greenway would have been there, of course, when this castle... So it's not like that road is um, you know, modern or incidental. It would have been the road still when the castle was built. Oh, yeah. There seems to be no direct approach from the north. Let me see. Can you can we go around this? Might have eroded. Maybe. Can we get up there? No. No. Not quite. I'm just 
You know, I can get up here. Look at me getting up here. Oh, what? I'm like uh, doing some... There we go. Look, I made it all the way up. Crazy. I'm just trying to figure out the vantage points here. My elk is not as sure-footed. Oh my goodness, this fortress. Look at this. Ground-level windows on a... Oh my goodness. This is a disaster from a defensive point of view. I would say the landscape changed quite a lot over the years. I don't think it's that's possible. Kind of, uh, it looks very much like the sides of this hill have uh, sort of rolled in on it. Yeah, yeah, very possible. Yeah, fourth one stayed up just barely. Yep. Yeah, no, that is possible. Though, <laughs> well, I was going to say, remember, we're only talking about a mere 2,000 years or so. Yeah, the, you know, the last 20 years, Ellicott City got wiped off the map by two floods. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even assuming that this approach wasn't here. It just when I was looking at it from the road, it seemed oddly situated in relationship to this hill. I mean, normally, you'd sort of expect for the um, expect for the uh, a fortress like this to be on the highest point, and it's just clearly not. At the very least, just think what damage you could do, even if you couldn't just walk in through the windows. Um, think of the so damage you could do to this with a, you know, some siege equipment up on top of this hill. Huh. Let's see. What do we have up on top of this hill that prevented them from... Well, there's a lot of trees up here. Maybe they just didn't want to clear them out. Well, that's the first thing you got to do. Yeah, but maybe it provided enough cover that it wasn't worth it. Right. Now, Arnola's pointing out that you'd have to come through the old forest, because that's right where we are, right at the boundary of the old forest? Yes. Yeah. Oh, man, we actually, like, enter into the old forest? Can we get in this way if we just go? I think so. Do we end up on the old I... forest map? You will. Cool. Whoa. Oh my goodness, there are ruins in here. Oh man. Okay, hang on. Here, I thought this was just going to be a little... No, no, we got to come back to this later on. Okay, okay. But now we know where we got to go next. We got to figure out what this Sark Vorn place is. Good grief. Okay, okay. Alright, so... Druid's Fire, I am not hearing you very clear. Your volume is very low. Same. I apologize. I can boost myself. Please. I can, I can barely hear that you are speaking. Okay. So let's assume that the terrain has changed in some ways here. And that this was more... I guess one of the things that I'm trying to figure is I'm trying to draw a, a firm conclusion about the intentions of this place. It was a city. It was their capital city. 
So it's not just a like a fort. It's not just a like a you know. A, so it's not just a tower of defense. It's certainly not just an urban sprawl. We were looking, for instance, in the northern parts of Yondershire at several different examples, right, of the, like, um, Lord's Manor kind of deal, the um, uh, defensive fortification kind of deal, the fortified city kind of deal. Um, This looks like fortified city, mostly, uh, so long as they solve this north-facing... Uh, uh, hill problem, but okay. Well, now I want to get back down to the road without killing myself. Because <laughs> I don't think I can get into the city from here. And anyway, I'm kind of keen to get back into it in the daytime. Hey, look, I did it without breaking my ankle. Well, also the fog sort of took away the beautiful view and vantage points, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, it's way foggier up top than it is down here in the valley. Blue skies down here. An unearthly damp up there. Yeah. Here we go. Turn Gorthod. Okay, so I'm turning back now. Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily a big city, Tomas, but it was clearly the seat of the Lord of Cardolan. Where's the, am I missing the road in again? I missed it last yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I miss it? Yeah, I'll put a beacon up. Oh, right. Yeah, there's the slope. I see it. Okay. Right. Wait, that's the way in? Mm-hmm. Wasn't the way in around the other side? That's how I'm getting in. I think maybe we're not in the same place. Entirely possible. Because I definitely remember... You went right past us. Yeah, I usually do. Looking at this rock. Okay, no, that's just a rock. I'm so glad I stuck that star. Aha, yeah, there it is. Right on. Okay. Yeah. Oh, now the fog rolls back in when we get up here. So is this fog just a you are in a place where there are ghosts and spirits kind of fog? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's an unhealthy, unhealthy seaboard. Yeah. Love the tower. Okay. I'm trying to... I'm trying to figure out the significance of that iconography. If we take that... um, If we take this tower and star thing as the symbol of Cardolan, what we were seeing okay in Arthodyne the symbol the primary symbol is the scepter mm-hmm. 
the scepter of Anuminus, because in fact they in Arthodyne still hold Anuminus itself, um, and the chief sort of authority, like everybody knows that Cardolan and Rudauer are splinter groups, and that Arthodyne is where the, you know the line of the kings runs through the lords of Arthodyne. So, Arthodyne announces this by having the scepter, um, the, you know, they're basically, by putting the scepter as their symbol, they're they're basically saying, we know that we are the rightful rulers of Arnor, right? Come on. We bear the scepter of Enuminous. Rudaur makes that woodland crown symbol which says we have a different kind of authority right not based on this not symbolized by the scepter but but on a crown right a different symbol of of rulership entirely and a new one our own one like we don't care we're distancing ourselves from our roots so to speak with the trees but the king also implies that they feel they have some sort of birthright that supersedes a, a symbol like a scepter yeah they 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 still claiming royalty Right, but royalty like on their own grounds, um, mm-hmm. their own woodland realm, right, of Rudaur, which was largely covered by trees, um, is um, this is this is their realm. This is the heart of their majesty and and royal authority. Um, but symbolically, they weren't tying themselves explicitly back to Anuminus and through Anuminus oh, to Numenor. Right, there was nothing. I mean, they still had the Numenorean stars, so they were remembering their Numenorean heritage, yes. but they weren't claiming that. Here in Cardowan now, what we see is kind of halfway in between the two, don't we? Yes. We've got the tower, and the tower, of course, looks very like towers that we've seen in Enuminous. Very much, yes. And I am guessing that through Enuminous, they are thinking back towards towers of Numenor. Itself now, Cardolan didn't form until way after, like way, way, way after any generation that remembered Numenor was dead. So Numenor itself is just a legend. By the time we get to the beginning of Cardolan, it's not in living memory, but it would be just as important as thinking of Mount Olympus or yeah, sure, sure, yeah. No, they're definitely still remembering it. Um, but that they have the tower, like a, a very anuminous style, very old, you know, as we've seen, that's the style. I mean, it's interesting because we don't see that style of architecture. They've not copied that architecture here. I mean, like the towers don't look like that in no, this I mean, very there's building. Elements, there's elements that look like the anuminous ones. Yep. But... Some. Some in particular notice the vertical window in the middle of the tower in the picture, right? Which yes, looks just yes. like the vertical windows which flank that on either side and the blue accents everywhere yep and the blue accents yes but again they're not actually building towers of this kind here but they're remembering yeah. the towers of that kind they're remember so they're more looking. yeah yeah they're showing their roots they're claiming the roots back to Anuminous and through Anuminous to Numenor but they're not sort of contesting about the scepter. They're not trying... I mean, they could just do that. They could just be like, the scepter, it's actually ours. We should have the scepter. It was stolen from us. Whatever. Like, that could have been their line, right? Oh, yeah. 
but this symbol doesn't seem to be taking that particular line. Uh, I do have the question, same question as Almari, actually. Could this be Elostirium? With the Elendil Stone, possibly. Yeah, the 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 the, the tower on uh, Emin Baride. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, possibly. So that's where my mind Thinking about looking back at looking back, and by the way, um, I will be bitterly disappointed if we never get um, the Elostirian in game, and if we do get the Elostirian in game, and there is not a Palantir in there, which you can look into and start a session play, I will be really disappointed. What I, here's here's all I'm asking for. Okay, Standing Stone people, here's all I'm asking for. I want the Elysterian. I want. I want the the Palantir, in the top cha- chamber of it. I want to be able to go up to the top chamber, and look into the Palantir. And when I look into the Palantir, I want a session play of the downfall of Numenor. Um. Yeah, and I want a session play, Queen Muriel. I want a session yeah. play. Queen Muriel in the downfall of Numenor. Too much to ask? Right? I don't think so. There we go. Yep. Complete we with great wave visuals. Absolutely, Hulgrim. Uh, we have to guess the names of all the landmarks on a blank map this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, that was a deep, deep cut reference to Mickey. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think um, uh, I think there's enough. I think there's enough in the license. Druid's fire, not worried about it. They have reference second age materials. Yeah, um, exactly. In the Miss Morgul expansion, so yeah. There is a lot in the appendices about uh, second age. Yes, there is. Um, Does they get more people code names? That's all. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to go exploring in here though. Okay. Like I know we're running out of time. Yeah, we are running out of time. Okay. Um where how do we get in? Up this way? Uh no, down this pathway. Down the pathway. Yeah. What happens if we go up here? I don't know. Uh well well since we're here. Let's go. oh my goodness, would you <sighs> That's a pretty big tower. Look, there's a standing stone over here. <gasps> Would you look at this? Ooh. An ancient standing stone with carvings on it? Oh. There's a monolith on a hill right next to where they built that. Um, so maybe this is a sacred hill before they built everything. Kind of looks that way, doesn't it? Wonder if this has anything to do with the um, unpleasantness that's going on in there. Yeah, that kind of happens when you, you know, take someplace sacred from people and say this is ours now, but because it's important to you, we're going to put our things here, so you'll think it's important here too, and I'm sure it's all going to work out. Could happen. By the way, those 
starry pillars Star are quite something. Yeah. Um, yeah, cause so, so look at this over here. Look at this over here. This part of the city. This was like a cathedral. Look at this thing. With the fancy, fancy pillars and the huge windows and that square boxy shape. And the way it's yeah. set off from the main walls. Yeah. I think that Once this... Again, going with the, it's a basilica kind of thing. With yeah. The, with taller windows. Yeah, who's that dude? Oh, that's Gorwin, whose caravan was over there. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I think this was some kind of... But again, notice how I would never have noticed this had we come in from the other side. But this whole area here, look at those big, huge windows. This whole sort of cathedral-esque thing. And who is that guy? Oh, it's a white. Um, Can you imagine, it, like, just getting all of the glass put in, like, out here? Yeah. What? Well, but it's backing right on that monolith site. Yeah. What are those called? There's a name for that. The, like the uh, when you've got the three stones, like the two standing up and the one across the top. That there's a thing that there's, there's a noun for that, but I, I'm forgetting what it yeah, was. Yeah, I'm I'm blanking on it. Let me look it up real quick. A henge. A dolmen. Yeah, henge, henge. I think is the correct term. What's a dolmen? Yeah, they, these are these are all like terms that are familiar to me. Yeah, but... dolmen, menier, henge. You know, it's all kind of. Yeah. Lentil. Men here, that's also a word, Beriadir, that I was thinking yeah, of. Yeah, I only know men here from Asterix. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it is one or more of those terms. Um, okay. So, men here is just the one standing stone. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's like an obelisk. That's kind of the joke. Obelisk delivers the men here. Right. Right. Um, okay. Oh, I thought it was a drunk skeleton. I didn't realize he was dying. There was a drunk skeleton? And I thought it was a drunk I just, uh, the, fir the first thing I saw of the skeleton, he was weaving back and forth and then flops over on his face. But no, he just. Been shot. Oh, it was because somebody shot him? I see. Yeah, somebody shot him. I yeah, see. I right. just, well, that's I an excuse. That's a good excuse, I suppose. All right. Um, yes, thank you, JJ48, for the visual thing. That's, that's obelisk delivering. Obelisk delivering an obelisk. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, um, it's getting late, and we had so there's more to discover here in Dole Ernil. Um, I wanted to go through and get like the layout of this and see if we could kind of f see feel the flow of this city or I know I, I kind of wish I had like an like an expanded aerial vision of this so I could get a better feel it's almost too big yes um, we got distracted by the perimeter but that's okay um, the perimeter is important too and if we hadn't seen those uh, the the monoliths, I would have been very disappointed. That is a really interesting piece of context here. 
That is a huge tower. Which one? The from over here, where I'm standing. Just looking up from here. Oh, that yeah, that yes. Like you'd have to get off your horse so the audience has a better view. And not blocked by the rear of my horse, I mean? Yeah. Yes. Oh wow, yeah, I didn't see that very tall That's one. Awesome. Very tall, very narrow one, which huh. Looks like it was probably attached to something else. Um yeah, like maybe it was a part of a buttress or something, but generally that looks like the sort of thing you'd like put a princess in or Yeah, no, it it looks to me like there was an arch or something that was evil sorcerer with a skull ring. Right. Yeah. Huh. Okay. All right. More, more next time. We'll do. Well, I promise we'll get more to the interior to the interior faster next time, um, and get a look around here, and then we will head back up towards Sarkvorn because I really want to explore there on the edge of the old forest, which I have a shrewd suspicion is going to connect with that monolith that we saw on the other side of Dal Ernil here. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there's also a very interesting. Statue in here, and you find out who it is by doing the quest. I see. Yes. Okay, Amareya. Um, uh, but I'm going to resist the temptation even to look at the statue yet. And um, oh, it's the gazebo statue we saw last week. Yes, the one with oh, the pin, oh, oh. the brooch. Yes. Very nice. Yes. Bombadil's maiden. Yes, exactly. Tom Bombadil's old friend. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So we will look around. A little bit more next time, and then maybe get back up towards the old forest and, and look at that the ruins that I saw a brief reference to, or a brief glimpse of, uh, from afar before I turned back and focused a little bit. Um, but, awesome. Cool. Well, thanks everybody for joining us again. Uh, I can see I'm going to be contentedly uh, exploring Cardolan for months and months to come. Uh, this is this is great stuff here. Um and um, looking forward to that. My, I think the plan, by the way, because, um, of course, we're almost getting up to Karathras and I, I saved that. I think I'm going to I think we can go back and do the Karathras thing when we get to the end of the chapter. Like when we get to Karathras had defeated them is when I think we can go and, and check out the depiction of Karathras in game. But um, uh, anyway. OK. Cool. Yeah. Oh, man. Hologrow. I, I do believe that Cardolan is going to take us weeks uh, to look at, for sure. Um, yeah. Then you've got Swanfleet. Yes, exactly. There's, right, that whole other region. Oh my goodness, yes. I keep forgetting there are two regions. Oh, cool. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I just love how there's always new surprises for me. Ooh. I didn't see. This is the first time I'm seeing the Are the new Aregian map. Hmm. Aregian was one of the last ones to have the old style maps. Uh, and Edwise got it too. Did it? Yep. Because you can ride straight into Edwise and back uh, near the Hobbit village. Yeah, of course you can. Hmm. Awesome. Very nice. Awesome. Oh man, so much, so much to see. Um, oh man, there's a new Lone Lands map too. Mm-hmm. Ooh. 
You can ride south from the path leading south from the Forsaken Inn. Right, right. Wow, Agamar just looks more terrifying now. Yeah, it sure does. Gartha Garwin looks uh, looks pretty bad. I like that. Oh man. Um. Very cool. All right. Okay. Anyway, as I was saying, thanks everybody. <laughs> I'm gonna get distracted looking at maps and everything else. Anyway, so that's where we're headed. Back here again next week. Thanks everybody for joining us, and I will. Uh, I should hopefully see you guys next week as usual. Thanks everybody. Bye now.